AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. Corn ethanol is the transportation fuel solution available to combat climate change today. Learn more about the climate benefits of corn ethanol at ncga.com. Writing a list of ingredients is one thing. Actually making the cake is a whole different process. Take it from someone who has done his fair share of cooking and eating. There are times when everything falls into place and the products of your kitchen might as well be from a five-star establishment. But other times, you're out of sugar, the oven won't turn on, and the pan you bought months ago is on back order. It's a little like what the biofuel industry faced following the passage of the RFS and growth in demand for their products. Congress wrote the list of ingredients, but it was up to farmers and biofuel producers to step in the kitchen and get cooking. And boy, did they cook. Now, with satisfied customers around the world, what's next? How does the biofuels industry move forward with the lessons it learned over the last 20 years and determine its future? Who is going to buy? And what does Congress have to say on the matter? I'm Spencer Chase. And I'm Ben Nully. We'll explore that and more as we wrap up our deep dive on biofuels with Episode 5, Holding Pattern. One of my favorite shows ever since it came on the air is Shark Tank. Entrepreneurs from all walks of life pitch their businesses to five uber-wealthy and super-savvy investors known for taking businesses worth thousands and making them worth millions. For the entrepreneurs, it's a chance to infuse some capital in their operation and get one of the best minds in business on their team, in exchange for a percentage of their business, of course. The negotiations can be high stakes, the ideas can be fascinating, and the personalities can be, if I'm being totally honest, a bit much. But it makes for some compelling television. I think there's something about investing that we all find intriguing. If I offered you an ironclad plan to turn $1 into 5 I'd have your attention. Heck, if I offered you a chance to throw a couple thousand bucks into the pot in the early days of Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, or Google, are you really going to turn down that opportunity? I mean, somebody's going to get rich. Why not me? I can't say for certain, but I think farmers who invested in ethanol and biodiesel plants in the last 20 or 30 years knew they weren't going to become billionaires out of the deal. But they believed in the idea were confident in the technology, and were willing to put their money behind it to build some of the earliest facilities that made biofuels. And, and part of the reason ethanol was successful, because the farmers bought into it. And the farmers became 100% believers that this is, this is a way to get the marketplace straightened out, to get rid of their surpluses. And so they invested their money, got behind it, created this marketplace, and it worked. That's Colin Peterson, a former chair of the House Ag Committee who was a member of Congress as biofuels grew from an idea to a reality. Take a drive down Interstate 80 or 90, maybe 29 or 35, and you're bound to drive by ethanol plants sprinkled throughout the Corn Belt. 
Heck, get off the highway and take some state roads and you're probably going to see even more. The first decade of the 2000s saw some big growth in the number of ethanol plants operating in the country. According to the Energy Information Administration, the 50 plants observed in 1999 shot up to 170 just 10 years later. In the next decade, the number would ebb and flow a little, but the figure has consistently hovered around 200 plants, with a total production capacity of about 16.8 billion gallons. But just because a plant opened its doors in the last 20 years doesn't mean it didn't encounter some challenges. Uh, but obviously it was, like anything else, uh, when it's a shiny new thing, that everybody is out there trying to get into it. During our conversation, Peterson rattled off a handful of facilities in his area. Some had returns that would make the Shark Tank investors blush. They were built at the right time in the history of the business, like one plant near Wilmer, Minnesota, that paid off a construction dent topping $100 million pretty quickly. You know, I mean, they paid it off in one year. Because uh, that was a, they hit the year where everybody was making a lot of money. And, um, and so then you had plants that built at the wrong time, you know, and they went bankrupt because the market collapsed because they overproduced it for that period of time and the RFS had not kept up, you know. So I remember there was a plant in Fergus Falls, a farmer-owned plant that was built and opened at exactly the wrong time, and they went belly up. Brian Jennings of the American Coalition for Ethanol recalls the early days of ethanol plant construction with the same view of some of the early settlers of the West precipitating passage of the RFS was sort of the gold rush time when um, there was significant investment flowing into the, the, um, the construction of ethanol facilities from all sorts of places. As Congress began passing legislation to mandate the use of biofuels, investing in the facilities to produce them makes sense. But there was more to the process than finding a plot of land in the middle of a bunch of cornfields, as some companies would later find out. And I think in retrospect, a lot of people would argue we overbuilt, um, you know, at that time. And some of those facilities didn't make it right. They picked the wrong location. They weren't cognizant of um, corn supply, um, rail availability. They, they, you know, they were in such a hurry they didn't do their due diligence and their homework to get that done. But the vast majority of plants did. And the vast majority of those plants that were constructed, if they were in the right location and, and, and had the right sort of um, logistics for, for um, you know, bringing corn in and, and delivering ethanol and co-products, they're absolutely, um, you know, doing as well as they can today, given the body blow that they experienced the last couple years economically. Yes, as anyone who has followed our website the last few years knows, it's been an interesting time in the biofuels business. And there was an interesting time before that, too. If you're one that likes policy stability and certainty, the ethanol industry might not be for you. But then there's people like Jeff Royne. He runs Poet, the largest ethanol producer in the world, with about 2 billion gallons of annual production and facilities throughout the Midwest. You know, these plants are mostly all stainless steel. They're built to last you know, 50, 75, 100 years. Uh, as long as you maintenance them and replace parts, 
Uh, these plants will be around for a very long time. And uh, some of the early, very small ones, uh, it's hard for them to compete with the bigger ones, uh, but we've expanded most of ours to a size where they should last indefinitely. Todd Becker caught the ethanol bug too. Today, he's the CEO of Green Plains, one of the largest ethanol producers in the country. In the early days, we were making a lot of money, right? It was good, we were in new policy, and then we, then we overbuilt for a while. Then what happens is we overbuild and demand caught up. We overbuilt, demand caught up. Then we overbuilt, policy caught up. And then we overbuilt, and we were just long ethanol at that point. We just had too much. And policy didn't catch up. I think where we're at is we have a chance for policy to catch up again. But boy, it was pretty rough for four or five years while policy isn't catching up with us. Both Broin and Becker navigated their companies through some of the biggest challenges the industry faced including a three-year pause in setting biofuel mandate blending targets and a glut of waivers small refineries received from the program. They both have decades of experience in the business and saw the big changes the industry went through following the passage of the renewable fuel standard. Becker says it's a policy that reshaped the business for Green Plains. You know, one thing that we tried to do with Green Plains is we wanted to diversify our income stream. So, we diversified into grain, into fuel terminals. We diversified into cattle feeding. We diversified into, you know, the largest vinegar producer when we bought Fleischmann's uh, in the world. And and what we realized is our, our shareholders, all they just kept asking about was ethanol, ethanol policy and, and what we're doing. And they didn't really care about diversification. So, you know, what that allowed us to do was obviously uh, we undiversified uh, and kind of focused really on our core business and our core processing business. The great thing about what we do we process lots of agricultural commodities. And so my view on ethanol has always been this policy that whoever came up with it 25 years ago, this is the cornerstone agricultural policy for US agriculture. You could take all of the rest and, and throw it away, but what without 5 billion bushels of corn demand in the United States, this agricultural sector will be a much weaker sector. Broin didn't have the diversification question to address, but he still saw the growth the industry experienced post-RFS. You know, the renewable fuel standard uh, really allowed the industry to, to grow significantly. You know, at the time, corn prices were extremely low. Um, we were looking for a renewable fuel. It, um, it really was the Bush administration that, that drove the RFS and started at seven and a half billion gallons. And it was so successful in making the industry grow from just, you know, a little under two billion gallons to seven and a half billion gallons in a very short period of time that they doubled up on it. And RFS2 took us to 15 billion gallons. So uh, without that, you know, I, I hate to think where egg prices would have been the last, you know, 20 years. I think we've had extremely low prices, not much, even much lower than they've been. But the two leaders have some different points of view, too. Specifically on the subject of small refinery exemptions, Broin says they should be a rallying cry for the industry. Did SREs create some challenging times? Absolutely. Did they impact the corn prices? Absolutely. Corn prices would have been much higher uh, the last four years without small refinery exemptions. They cut the demand for biofuels, which cut the demand for corn. So, you know, I think that farmers, uh, ag organizations need to step up and start battling the oil companies. You know, why does why do the oil companies have so much influence in EPA? Well, ag needs to be there as well. We need to be fighting for our place at the table. We need to be fighting for our share of the gas tank. Now, Becker isn't necessarily a fan of SREs, but he says that and the blending target delay earlier in the decade may have been exaggerated in their actual impact on the industry. Yeah, you know what? At the end of the day, 
nobody's not going to blend ethanol because they're afraid when the RBO comes out, what is there going to be their liability? So to me, no big deal. The whole, um, the whole SRE, you know, the uh, small refinery exemptions. Yeah, I, I suppose it could have had an impact, but you know, at the end of the day, are we, are we competitive fuel? Do we compete at the fuel pump? Is it a good fuel? And is it a needed fuel? And I say, yes. And, and quite frankly, even with the SREs, look, there's always ways around it for all these refiners. They found the ways around it. You know, there, it's the haves and the have nots around the SREs. Who has the RIN? Who doesn't have the RIN? It's a zero sum game. The two men are also a little different in their view of the future of the industry. Broin is all in. Yields will continue to go up. Don't kid yourself. Yields are not going to stop going up. They're, they could go up 200 bushel an acre yet, in my opinion, on corn. In the next 20 years, 30 years, there's tremendous potential. We need to use that corn up. Ben is going to talk a little later in the episode about the policy future for the industry. Broin is expecting big things. Oh, we're, you know, we're believers that we'll have at least a 15 billion gallon RFS moving forward. And in fact, we think it'll, it will actually expand based on uh, corn supplies, based on, you know, uh, uh, obviously we've got Joe Biden as president who's very interested in cleaner air. Uh, quite frankly, the only way to, to truly clean air and, and to truly uh, decrease in climate change is to use agriculture. I think that uh, people are asleep a bit on the fact that you have to go back to getting everything from the surface of the earth to really slow or stop climate change. And that means agriculture. There's no other place to go. Becker, on the other hand, is going back to diversifying. The company is still going to be involved in biofuels, make no mistake about it. But Becker doesn't want to be so tied to the policy roller coaster he's been riding for the last decade. After years of, obviously, the volatility of ethanol, we have found our path where we believe we have a disruptive technology among um, across many fronts that we're going to install not only across our platform, but also among the industry where we can really start to transform into a true biorefinery and move away from the volatility and variability of the traditional ethanol business and into a high-value recurring cash flow and predictable environment where we're producing high value products in demand, not linked to global or government policy. And we're literally in the middle of a, a, a massive transformation. He says a new direction for the company is going to allow it to make more use of the corn kernels it currently turns into ethanol. The corn kernel has starch and the corn kernel has fiber and the corn kernel has CO2. The starch makes the ethanol, the fiber makes the protein. We're going after the highest value of that fiber and trying to monetize the carbon while making the same amount of ethanol. So in order to be successful in what we call Green Plains 2.0, we have to have a very, which is protein ingredients and value added and margins and recurring. We have to have a very strong 1.0 platform that makes ethanol every single day, but makes it very efficiently low cost and, and runs those operations from a quality control and quality assurance because in order to have a strong one 2.0 platform, as we say, you have to have a very strong 1.0 operating platform. Becker wants to make something clear. This is a business decision that reduces policy volatility impact. It's not a reaction to frustrations about biofuel policy. Broin and Becker are just two of the people working in the industry today who hope it's going to be around tomorrow and the next day. But what has to happen on Capitol Hill to make sure that can be the case? And who around the world might be interested in more U.S. ethanol when domestic consumers have had their fill? Ben will take a look right after this. 
AgriPulse Deep Dive is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and low-carbon corn-based ethanol. Ethanol, as a transportation fuel, is uniquely positioned to immediately combat climate change and clear the air we all breathe. Affordable, readily available, corn-based ethanol provides consumers with a renewable low-carbon solution today and for decades to come. Learn more about the ethanol policies and priorities of NCGA at ncga.com. Throughout this podcast series, we've touched a little bit on how the increasing move to carbon reductions could provide potential benefits for the biofuels industry. But it's not just the U.S. Ethanol advocates are also looking for opportunities with other countries to lower their carbon footprint, too. According to the Renewable Fuels Association, the U.S. produced 13.2 billion gallons of ethanol in 2010, and that increased to 15.7 billion gallons in 2019. Some 10% a year is exported. Brian Healy is Director of Global Ethanol Market Development for the U.S. Grains Council and says the U.S. has a superior product. I would say the reputation is that it's readily available, that it can meet or uh, exceed the the, uh, stringent sustainability or greenhouse gas uh, requirements. That, that countries have within their policy and that, uh, you know, the U.S. is a reliable supplier and a reliable partner, uh, both for the product, but also technical expertise on, on how to use it. As of early May, 49 countries have committed to implementing biofuels as a way to reduce emissions reduction goals in the Paris Climate Accord by 2030, according to the U.S. Grains Council. Healy says current customers vary from country to country because of different policies put in place, That largely dictates the country's own ethanol production and demand from global partners. For example, he says Brazilian and Canadian policies may differ from those in Asian countries. Big ones primarily would be India, uh, as well as China, and then some uh, smaller size markets that we don't quite have access to the fuel market for would be Korea. That's another example, good market, but, you know, not, we haven't accessed the fuel market there. That's the case in India as well. But we also export to Nigeria. Um, That's another industrial market. Um, And then, you know, some product goes to the EU and and smaller countries in in South America. So we're we're pretty global in terms of where ethanol is and, you know, strategically placed as an organization of having a physical presence in the countries that are our major export markets. The U.S. ethanol industry sees China as a major opportunity to help lower carbon emissions because of the amount of pollution they produce. They got extremely excited when the country committed in 2017 to enforce an E10 blending mandate by 2020. But China has since backed off from that. Healy says it's due to several reasons. One in part was, you know, they still had provincial policies in place um, for the last 15 years. So China has continued to implement uh, and enforce those E10 local provincial policies. Uh, They looked at some lower blend rates in in, in other provinces. And so we've we've worked on that provincial level, um, but we've also tried to work with them as they made that announcement for the national uh, level mandate um, at the beginning of or end of 2016, beginning of 2017. In part, that was they didn't have access at that time to U.S. ethanol, primarily uh, because of 75 percent tariffs on U.S. product that made it you know prohibitively expensive uh, to get into that market, 60 percent rather than 75 percent, but still. Um, you know, something that you couldn't quite pencil in at that time. 
And so if you're looking to an ethanol program, recognize you can supply a lot locally, um, but need to also look to the global market. But, you know, the math didn't work in order to get product from the global market. So we've certainly seen some of that ease with the allowance of uh, Section 301 uh, tariffs to be waived or, or to be uh, written off, but, you know, still have 232 tariffs on there. And so have a 45% tariff. Healy says their hope is that the Chinese will continue with the E10 nationwide policy, sharing not only environmental and human health benefits, but seeing it as a boon to their local industry. He says it sends a powerful signal that the second largest gasoline user in the world would adopt an E10 policy just like the U.S. You know, China's one of those markets, you know, growing excessive uh, rate of growth in terms of gasoline demand. Um, and so, you know, expecting, again, some domestic production. But as long as the U.S. has access, would be able to provide uh, or supply some, uh, some ethanol to that market. Um, you've got growing demand in South and Southeast Asia. So those are other opportunities and, and largely pretty low penetrations of ethanol to date. You know, India just made an announcement. Their Prime Minister Modi made an announcement to uh, move to E20 by 2025, an extremely ambitious goal. I think, again, looking at other countries, you'll see, you know, if that policy is enforced, which has been an issue in the past in India, but if that policy is enforced and actually implemented, um, you'll see a draw from the global market so long as the Indians change their policy to allow fuel ethanol to help meet what the domestic producers cannot. And so India is a market that, you know, five, six, seven percent has been their blend rate in the past. But that's quite a significant leap up to 20 percent uh, in just a few years, especially with a growing demand for gasoline. Healy talks about policies having to be able to work abroad, but what do they have to look like domestically through 2022 and beyond? Renewable Fuels Association President and CEO Jeff Cooper wants to make it clear that the RFS doesn't just disappear after 2022. There's a lot of people that that misunderstand that. Really what happens is EPA has far more discretion in setting the volumetric requirements after 2022, but they 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 do they are somewhat hemmed in by some criteria in the statute that they have to uh, comply with. So our position on the RFS post-2022 is that it needs to continue to provide growth for all of the categories of renewable fuel that are required under the RFS. And if you go back and look at the original RFS that was part of the Energy Policy Act of 2005, or look at the 2007 bill that extended the RFS, it was clear, it was abundantly clear that Congress's intent was for the program to continue providing growth in the production and consumption of renewable fuels long-term, well beyond 2022. So there is a statutory basis for EPA to ensure that the RFS in 2023 and beyond continues to grow all of those categories of renewable fuel. Cooper says any objective analysis EPA makes of the six statutory factors that they look at to determine post-2022 volumes would lead them to understand that the RFS has been incredibly successful and should grow those volumes long term. But what about a national low-carbon fuel standard? Could they both work together? Cooper thinks they can. You know, we think a national low-carbon fuel standard could complement very well uh, the, the renewable fuel standard. The RFS is a volumetric program. It requires certain volumes 
of specific renewable fuels uh, to be used. The LCFS, as we said, is, is entirely different. It's focused on greenhouse gas emissions reductions um, and could layer on top of an, of an RFS, we think, very effectively and, and drive you know, far greater emissions reductions than we're getting from the RFS alone. Um, so we think the two policies could be complementary, could work together, uh, and ultimately that's what we'd like to see long term. We don't expect to see any legislative action on the RFS. It doesn't appear to us that there's any appetite in Congress for them to try and get in here and, and, and prescribe volumes after 2022 or make other legislative changes to the program. Uh, but we could see uh, Congress take up uh, a national low carbon fuel standard at some point in the, you know, the next three to five years. On the oil side, Patrick Kelly, senior policy advisor for the American Petroleum Institute, says the set rulemaking for 2023 and beyond creates an opportunity for EPA to refocus the program. The program so far has been successful in uh, spurring all this investment into first generation biofuel production uh, and, and distribution into the marketplace. And I think that the, the set rulemaking creates an opportunity to use that as a springboard for uh, really moving into those second and third generation biofuels, the ones that really have a um, much more significant impact on reducing the uh, carbon impact of transportation fuels. And so, and, and, and we support that. API recently came out with our climate policy framework. We see fuels as a uh, critical piece of that. And we look to see EPA taking action to really refocus the RFS program from being a, an agricultural-based, I should say biomass-based program where, where the, the, uh, the first-generation biofuels have really increased over the last you know, decade under the program and really shift the focus to be more of a, a carbon-based program. And to look at the future of the RFS as really being something that can uh, use carbon as a metric for fuels in the marketplace. And, and like I say, really refocus the program to, to achieve that carbon reduction in the transportation marketplace. Despite the EPA having full authority over the RFS after 2022, Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa says she will be a guardian for the RFS and will make sure the industry survives and thrives in the years ahead. And that will be the challenge because this is an unknown administration. But if you look at what they've laid out before them already, it's EV, EV, EV. And that is concerning to me. So if at the very least we can, t- can maintain the current renewable fuel standard, I think that's a great starting point. But we need to make sure that we continue to enhance it so that we're thriving, not just surviving. Um, but that has to be communicated uh, to the Biden administration and bring them out of, I'm sorry, bring them out of la-la land in thinking that every American is going to be driving an electric vehicle in the next 10 years, because that simply is not going to happen. So there needs to be a good balance out there. And we need to ensure that we're pushing our agenda very, very hard because I do not want to see a world where they can simply eliminate the RFS and leave our renewable fuel industries and our farmers hanging. But putting it bluntly, as he normally does, former House Agriculture Committee Chairman Colin Peterson, a Democrat from Minnesota, 
thinks lawmakers will do what we've seen time and time again in Washington, kick the can down the road and pass some sort of an extension for the deadline. Well, what'll probably happen is when we come up against that 22 deadline, there'll be some kind of an emergency fix (laughs) and they'll kick the can down the road a little bit. And then sometime during the decade, they'll find out that the 2030 uh, deadline is not realistic, you know, and that'll factor into things. And, you know, so I think we'll muddle through and I think ethanol will survive, you know, it's probably not going to be wildly profitable, but you know, they're probably not going to lose money. But I'm guessing it'll be a a muddle-through situation. Peterson says one of the problems agriculture has today is that the Corn Belt and majority of the Midwest is represented by Republicans. There are no Democrats, you know, to speak of. You got Sherry Bustos, uh, Angie Craig, Cindy Axney, and their districts are more suburban than rural. You know, so you don't have anybody in the Democratic Party that has a rural district anymore. And that's the problem. You know, but at the end of the day, the Republicans are not going to go along with something that does in ethanol because of who they represent. And so in order for them to get anything done, they're going to have to have some Republican buy-in. And so who knows what will the compromise will be to get that done. It's very hard to tell, but it's, um, I don't think we're going to come up against 2022 and make some big change that's going to just go in a 90 degree direction. I don't believe that'll happen. Throughout this series, we've talked to a lot of people. Between us, we did dozens of interviews to produce these five episodes, but there's a lot of people we didn't talk to, too. It's not like we meant to exclude them. It just would have been a challenge to chat with about 350,000 or so people who work in the biofuels industry across the country. For the lobbyists and lawmakers trying to figure out a policy future, that's what's at stake. Many of those jobs are also in rural areas that were starved of economic development. We are not going to put in jeopardy an industry across the Midwest that took the plywood off of storefronts in in, in rural America and that allowed farm kids to go back home and farm with, with mom and dad. That's the story. I remember about 10 years ago, I, I asked probably three, four, 500 farmers in a room, uh, how many of you have uh, kids that came back to the farm that otherwise would not have come back to the farm if it hadn't been for the ethanol industry? 25% of the room stood up and it was an emotional moment. That's allowed that to happen. And that is not just a, that's just not a, political question. It's not just a business question. It's, it's a societal question. It's an emotional question. And, you know, we are not going to go ahead and put that at jeopardy. We want to move forward from where we're at, not back up and then take another run at it. That's John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association, who, by the way, is the sponsor of this podcast. 2022 is on the horizon and roughly 350,000 biofuel industry jobs are depending on the future of the industry surviving. But a lot of questions remain. Will new policies like a low-carbon fuel standard push the industry to shift to producing more advanced biofuels rather than conventional corn ethanol? In the coming years, consumers are either going to be looking at electric vehicles or more fuel-efficient internal combustion engines. 
So where does that leave an industry seeking to grow its percentage of a shrinking gas tank? And what does that mean for the small towns and the jobs that rely on this sector? Farmers, biofuel producers, lobbyists, members of Congress, heck, officials all the way up to the White House will have to grapple with these issues as they determine the future policy landscape for ethanol, biodiesel, and in turn rural America. We hope you've enjoyed our deep dive on biofuels. If you missed the first four episodes, they're available at agripulse.com or on your favorite podcast app. For Spencer Chase, I'm Ben Nully. AgriPulse Deep Dive on Biofuels is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and Low Carbon Corn Based Ethanol.